Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode, I'm just going to be taking audience questions. I went out on Twitter and asked if there was any questions people would want to ask me, and I got a good bunch. And so I've just got them in front of me here, and I'm just going to run through them in the order that they're showing up on my feed and get through as many as I can. I think I'd like to do this episode as a little bit more of, like, a casual one, a little bit more chatty. So, like, when I normally do solo episodes, I prepare it, and I get my quotes, and I don't quite write out a verbatim script, but I have a pretty clear idea of what I want to say. Here, I'm just going to be giving you, like, my off-the-cuff reactions. So I might make a sort of fub or two here or there, and don't take anything I have to say in this as, like, absolute writ. I'm more imagining this as, like, a chat. Indeed, I think it would be quite fun at some point to do, like, a live one of these, where, you know, I had, like, a live audience and I could just take questions in real time. I think that would be a bit of a logistical nightmare to set up, so I'm going to do this as, like, a, a second best. But at some point, I think that might be fun, and I am planning, once COVID lifts, and who knows when that'll be, to do a few live events. Even if they were quite small, I think that would be um, just a really nice experience for, for everyone. So interpret this more in that vein, as literally I'm taking questions from the audience, I'm giving you my reactions, but these are just going to be like, my initial thoughts or where my thinking is on this. And sometimes people ask me stuff that I really just don't know, and I'll just say it and, and move on. Just before we get started, I've got a bunch of thank yous to do, and I'll try and make this brief. I've um, got a lot more followers recently on the um, podcast apps, as well as a few more Twitter followers, so if you're joining the podcast recently, um, welcome, thanks for listening. And there's a whole bunch over a hundred of back episodes. You don't need to listen to them in any particular order. So, you know, just go through, check them out, see what seems interesting to you. Uh, secondly, got a big boost in uh, support from Patreons. So this podcast goes out for free and advertisement free. And all of the costs associated with it are covered by listeners. And we've seen a really big jump recently. We went from like 40 to 60 Patreons, which is like a, a good additional um, chunk of income. So really, I'm genuinely grateful for everyone who went and signed up and did that. Um, and there's a few projects that are going to have been made possible by that additional income that I'm going to be excited to roll out over the next few months. Um, the first one is I hired a paid intern for the podcast, which I think will... Um, help with a variety of stuff that will make this a more quality project. And I've got a few more things coming in the pipeline that I'll be excited to share with you. So big thank you to everyone who did that. As well as I've just seen some pretty good engagement on um, the social media channels recently. So thank you to all of the Twitter followers who like or share or comment on the posts. Um, that's just kind of cool to have, and, um, you know, I get some really interesting and detailed comments and feedback and so on, so it's always just nice to hear what people are, are thinking. Um, and indeed, all the questions um, I'm going to take today um, come from the uh, a post I did on Twitter, so um, thank you for that uh, engagement, and hopefully I can give you um, something that's of interest in response to your questions. Okay, so with that all done, this is just an informal audience questions one, and let's get straight to it. Okay, so audience questions. Just taking these from Twitter. Just logged on to ask you about privacy. I think it's strange that there aren't any rights to privacy defined in the Constitution. Could an argument for privacy be made on the right to free association? Is there anything in the liberal canon that might apply to this? Well, I don't think there's explicitly a right to privacy defined in the Constitution. But as a part of the sort of set of precedents 
um, that this, you know, courts have built up over the years, um, we do generally read into the Constitution as implying a right to privacy. And that's most notably present in the abortion debate. So the whole Roe versus Wade thing, um, I'm not an expert on this, by the way, but my understanding is it sort of um, sidesteps the issue of the morality of abortion and um, rests a limited right to abortion, at least in some, some circumstances with particular tests and qualifiers. It rests that on a right to privacy that was established in previous Supreme Court rulings. So I think the, the mainstream legal opinion is that there sort of is implicitly a right to privacy in the Constitution, although it's most usually associated with the abortion debate. Um, is there anything in the liberal canon that might apply to this? Well, most obviously the public-private divide. So this is the sort of idea that there's sort of a distinction between, like, what you do in your own home and what you do when you're speaking publicly or engaging publicly or in a public place. And the general idea is that the government should be much more hands-off when it comes to the private than it should be with the public, and there's a whole load of literature on that. Um, and a sort of interesting note with the public-private divide is this has sort of been challenged more recently by a lot of feminists who point out that one, the public-private divide might be quite gendered, we might be conceptualising public spaces as male and private spaces as female, and also that power dynamics and abuses that we might want to protect against also occur in, uh, in private spaces. So, you know, time was, and maybe a lot of times time still is, that if the police get a call um, about domestic violence and the husband comes to the door and says, don't worry, I've got it under control, it's all sorted, you know, the police will just say, well, you know, that's his private space, he's managing that, um, we should probably back off. And so there has been this this more contemporary sort of second to third wave feminist challenge that a, a clean public-private separation isn't possible. And then sort of more liberal or like libertine thinkers will push back again and say, but we don't want, we do want to carve out some spaces where people have autonomy, including sexual autonomy, and if it's not exactly the public-private divide, it needs to be something like that. So that's like a sort of brief overview of like what you might draw from um, the, the liberal canon on the, the right to privacy. Next up, um, does Frieden's, uh, Michael Frieden, I'm guessing, uh, does Frieden's analysis of ideologies involve practical governance stroke real po realpolitik kinds of concerns? Or like, what's the modern framework for analysing how ideologies interact with political institutions, civil service structures, and political economies? Yeah, so... Frieden has like three layers to an ideology, and I think the questioner has a second question at some point where he references this. There's the core, which are the most sort of valued central conceptual goals. So in the case of liberalism, this is something like freedom, individuality, uh, rational choice making, uh, in some other forms, uh, progress, pluralism, society, stuff like that, right? Um, there'll then be a sort of further set of goals that are, like, not as central but instrumental to fleshing these out, which he calls adjacent. So again, in the case of liberalism, this might be something like um, education, democracy, free markets, stuff like that, right? And then finally, there's the periphery, which is where those ideas get translated into political practice. So this might be like a particular doctrine on free trade or market education, uh, or markets or education or uh, the level of government spending or the level of taxation or the legality of gay marriage or any, any essential set of policy concerns, right? So 
I don't read Frieden, I don't think Frieden reads Frieden, as a pure idealist. Idealist in this sense, meaning that, like, history is driven by ideas. I think the essential insight here is that the core and the periphery are, are mutually informing, and if one changes, the other will change. So, for instance, if you change the liberal core to a libertarian core, so you take out elements of progress, development, sociability, and just strip it all down to just freedom and individuality, that will change the peripheral concepts that can be supported by that core. So, for instance, more expansive state action would be much harder to be supported by that core, because the core in itself is now much more minimal, much thinner, much more emaciated. Conversely, though, and I think this is what the, the questioner is driving at, is changes in real-world politics will affect um, the, the sort of inner constellation of concepts at the core. So, I'm trying to think of an example here, but you could say something like the moderating turn that liberalism took in the 90s, both in the US and the UK under Clinton and Blair, that entailed um, a, a fairly substantive rejigging of the policy platform. And what seemed to come along with it, intentionally or not, and my feeling is, is more towards the not, is, is that the central commitments had to shift. So, what do I mean with that? Well, in, in going towards um, a, a set of policy platforms which was much more market-orientated, which was much more to do with, you know, achieving social welfare outcomes and doing stuff for the people at the bottom, but doing them by manipulating markets as opposed to, like, big government programs, I think that changed this adjacent conception of the state and the state became reduced to sort of like a supporting partner. The state is to prepare you and educate you and get you set up for and give you the tools and the resources and the equal opportunity to participate within the market. But it's the market in which we locate um, the sort of liberal values of um, autonomy and individuality and self-development we don't have the conception that you had in older progressive liberal and social democratic theorists, where the state itself can create the environment in which people can have autonomy and thriving and self-development and so on. The state is much more there to just ease you in. More than that, I think we've lost both in philosophic liberalism, dating to maybe about John Rawls, and also in the sort of practical, third-way, centrist liberalism of our political parties. We've lost a focus on progress, we've lost a focus on um, self-development, and the, the individuality which we do preach is, is more truncated, it's more enabling individuals to participate within existing institutions, as opposed to um, the changing of institutions through an ongoing process being part of the expression of individuality. Um, a sort of final point is liberalism, even in its very classical or like very libertarian forms, has always had sort of non- individual groups. It's always recognised collective groups, so these can be the state, these can be the market, these can be a corporation, um, but they have got much thinner. Like, we used to talk in much more open terms about society as um, an organic being with rights and interests of its own. Even Mill talked about society that way, and thinkers like Hobson and Hobhouse and Keynes certainly did, and that's kind of gone. The sort of like mid-level groups we talk about are like family in a sort of quite traditional sense, community in sort of quite a thin mutual assistance sense, the market 
in again quite a sort of classical fixed sense um, and a lot of the more ambitious thinking about the the possibilities of groups not in contrast to individuality but as enablers of individuality that sort of slipped away now i wonder if that sort of change in the liberal core taking it from something that is still recognisably progressive, but stripping out the more ambitious elements of progress, development, and community, and replacing them with a more static vision of groups and institutions. Um, I wonder if that's just sort of what naturally followed along from the policy compromises that left-wing parties in um, the 90s felt that they needed to do. Now, what's interesting now, of course, is that the policy platforms of, you know, Labour and the Democrats are sort of flirting with a more radical agenda, but without necessarily catching up on a more radical con set of underlying concepts. You know, Joe Biden said he's willing to talk about much more government spending for the coronavirus, but his underlying values that he pins that to are still much more of this sort of watered-down, third-way sort of stuff. And, and even someone like Bernie Sanders, who people think is, my gosh, just the most radical person ever, I mean, his policy platform is definitely to the left. But the underlying values he appeals to are stuff like saying, well, if you work hard, you know, and work full-time, you shouldn't have to live in poverty. Well, there's a sort of radical policy attached to that. Or not even that radical, I'm not sure how radical I think a $15 an hour minimum wage is. But the underlying assumption that a standard of living is a reward for participation in certain forms of capitalist labour markets, that goes unchallenged. What I might say is, in a truly free society, everyone would have the resources to live the most free and autonomous and satisfying life that they possibly can, restrained only by the rights of all others to the same resources. That's what I would like people to say. And even on the more radical side, you know, we're, more, we're increasingly willing to talk about like big government interventions and stuff, but less so to really reformulate our concepts, and that's something I like to think and talk about a lot. So the short answer to the question is that they're mutually informing, but they're, they're mutually informing in complex and difficult to understand ways, and in ways that may not always be consciously thought about by everyone involved. A final point here, and this has turned into quite a long answer, is one way of thinking about this is which is the correct framework, idealism or materialism? Is it the case that people have ideas, implement ideas, and they change the world? Or is it that there are underlying economic and political structures, and people come up with ideas as sort of after-the-fact justifications of them, but it's, it's really just all the economics or whatever? My sort of answer, and this is what I'm building to in my Ideologies of the Ancient series, is you kind of have to have both. Even though they both, at some logical level, I realise they both can't be true at the same time. I feel like I've never really understood what's happening until I look at it from both the idealist and the materialist perspective. And not to do some wishy-washy, it's a bit of both. To look at it as a matter of pure idealism, and then to look at it as a matter of pure materialism, and being like a you know, Marxist historical materialist has fallen out of fashion. But when you, when you apply that frame to the world, you shake out insights that, that other frameworks don't give you. And the same with a pure idealism. That's no longer particularly fashionable, but it gives you insights that others, that others don't. And so I like having both, even though I realise that's sort of epistemically schizophrenic. Um, I think you kind of have to have both. I think they're both they're both coherent paradigms that are only partially true. So, that, that's my initial thoughts on that, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge question.
what next one? What would building mass support for US demilitarization and non-interventionism look like as a political cultural project? Yeah, so this is really interesting, and this is one of the things where I sort of think the far left has their strongest points is I think when people say, oh, there's no difference between the political parties, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like on domestic policy, at least, on inequality, on taxation, on employment rights, on unions, on abortion, on gay rights, on anti-racism. There are huge differences between our main political parties. Now, when it comes to foreign policy, it is more true that there has been a sort of thin bipartisan consensus from, I guess, even the time of the Second World War through to today, um, which we haven't really been able to vote out of office. Now, I think that overstates it a bit. I think Obama's instinct, for instance, was definitely to sort of scale back at least the direct intervention of US troops. I think Trump has had a much more sort of pro-authoritarianism foreign policy. He's clearly just, as a matter of, like, personal comfort, um, much more um, sympathetic to authoritarian leaders than democratic ones. So... I think there are differences between the parties there that are worth looking at. With that said, what what would a true sort of pulling back from the American empire look like? I really don't know. My my gut instinct is that the sort of anti-war movement on the left has sort of fizzled out a bit. I think it was quite strong under Bush. I think it weakened under Obama. And I think it's something that gets brought in as like part of the Bernie movement, but I think their real grievances are domestic too. They're about healthcare and inequality and so on. Um as well as a just sort of reflexive anti-establishmentism. So what would it look like? My guess? And this is just a hunch. My guess is it would have to be tied together with like domestic reforms. Like, what if we, I'm not saying this is even necessarily a good idea, but what if we rebuilt all of the infrastructure in this country using the Army Corps of Engineers? And the sort of slogan was something like, you know, stop rebuilding Afghanistan, start rebuilding America. Something that sort of tied it back to patriotism and a nationalising project. I mean, also people would just have to care about it again, which I'm just... I'm not 100% that this is, like, a big voting issue for a lot of people. At least if you look at, like, exit polls. It isn't really, and to the extent foreign policy is a big voting issue, it's more like who's more competent to handle it, as opposed to who's gonna do a really great job of it. So I don't know. I think you'd have to, like, link it up to domestic policy somehow. But I don't really know what that would look like. Um, any plans to do an episode on Gramsci? Ah, uh, no time soon. Um, I did, I wrote on Gramsci a bit in my MA, but that's forever ago. And there's people I wrote on back then who I've, I still have a pretty good recall of. And once I, like, get into the reading again, I can do it. I'd have to do a lot of work to do a good one on Gramsci. And Gramsci also has a thing where he sort of talks in this, like... It talks about dialectics and stuff. So they're kind of, it's like this is when, like when I did Popper versus Adorno. It's a really sort of challenging one to do because you have to almost like spend an episode defining what all the terms mean. There's definitely a like um, translation that has to be done. Now, with all that said, I do like Gramsci, but like he's not a thinker I'm crazy familiar with. So um, I think. Yeah, if there's a lot of demand for it, sure, but it would, like, be a lot of research on my part to get up to speed there. Okay, next. Drawing from your experience in campaign work, what do the successful political campaigns have in common? Yeah, I, I like this question. This is a fun question. So the first fact is the depressing fact. The depressing fact is in modern American politics, at least in a general election, the most important thing in deciding the outcome is the partisan lean. If you are in a plus 10 Democratic district, you're almost certainly going to win. If you're in a plus 10 Republican district, 
you're almost certainly going to lose. And basically everything you're doing is sort of like just clawing a few points back from that underlying spread. And that's all there really is to it. It's the lean of the district and whatever the national lean is. Um, and that, that maps all the way up to, to presidentials as well. But certainly I've done a lot of races in state and local. And no one's really paying attention. They're just sort of voting their underlying partisan affiliation. Here's a few things I've noticed, though, that do make a difference in, claw, in, in that sort of clawing back a few points. Maybe closing a three or four point gap. Firstly, attitude. Something that's shared by the, the, the campaigns I've worked on successfully is we've always sort of conceptualised ourselves as being about 500 votes behind. Whether it's true or not, that seems to be the attitude for a winning campaign. If you think you're way ahead, you get complacent. If you think you're way behind, you sort of, like, settle into, you know, just like, well, whatever, screw it, it's done. Like, successful campaigns I've been on, we're always trying to just got to get one more vote, one more vote, one more vote. That's sort of the attitude. The other one is you want people who are genuinely invested in the campaign and the staff, ideally from the local community, ideally volunteers. Now, I have some ethical problems with volunteer labour. I think political campaigns have a lot of money. And if people are putting labour in, they should be paid for it. With that said, if you just put out $15 an hour for canvassers and get a bunch of people in who aren't necessarily from that district, um, you get people who knock on a door, recite the script they're given, and all they're looking for is the check mark. Yes, this person will be voting. That is a very good way to flush away 100 grand with a lot of labour and hassle and no obvious results. You really, and there's actually political science research to, to, to speak to this, volunteers do better than paid canvassers. And people from the district um, do better than people from outside the district. This is incidentally one of the big reasons Bernie lost. And I've got people who worked on that campaign, and I'm going to be careful not to... Um, divulge information, but I know a lot of people who've told me, you know, we got to South Carolina with a bunch of white organisers from Connecticut, and we went and we canvassed, like, the university towns, and, you know, the idea of we need to hire people from the community to talk to the community wasn't something they were particularly interested in doing. That's a big reason why Bernie lost. Um, it's a big reason why someone like Paul Wellstone won. He sort of pioneered this method. It's a big reason, actually, why progressives lose in general. Is um, It's actually not a money thing. Um, a lot of progressive campaigns are as well funded. A lot of progressive primary challengers spend more than the incumbent they're trying to unseat. But... Their sort of connections and organising and networks and whatever are quite centrally located. And so if they want to go for a district in upstate New York or an overwhelmingly black district in East Brooklyn or something, they're necessarily sort of shipping people in. Whereas the, the people who have, you know, the, the, the sort of quote-unquote more moderate establishment candidates, they're the ones with the sort of infrastructures that can recruit people from that community. And actually, people often phrase this as a rural-urban thing, a rich-poor thing, a black-white thing. It's all of those things, but it is just sort of the idea that if I'm knocking on someone's door, and I'm saying, hey, so-and-so home, oh yeah, hey, um, um, I'm canvassing for so-and-so, um, I'm a voter in this district, I live just down this way, um... You know, what are, the, what are the issues that concern you in this race? And people say, oh, I don't know, I feel like the schools aren't very good. And the person, you know, can, is perhaps not someone who's your typical liberal 21-year-old white guy, but is someone from the community who can say, oh, yeah, you know, my kids go to um, this other school just near yours, but actually my, my oldest did go to that one. And, yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. Dude, do I even need to continue? Like, you, you know, you can make this about black, white, rich, poor, urban, rural, but just, it, it actually transcends all of that. 
And it's having people who'll have some shared knowledge, some shared frame of reference to talk to people with. Now, that's not to say that outside organisers can't do some good. I've done a lot of work in rural districts. I've done a lot of work in you know, non-white districts of various kinds. Um, my Spanish isn't so good, but, you know, hey. Um, so it's not to say you can't, but that can't be all that you're doing, right? Um, and, I, and again, I don't think it has to be volunteers, but it needs to be people who know the local area and people who are heavily ideologically bought in. And so if you just hire from people from Craigslist, do a half-hour training and send them out, that... Like I said, that is just a very good way of wasting tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so, overall, main thing is the partisan lean of the district. You're not really changing that. Um, number two is you want to be conceptualising yourself as like a few hundred votes behind. That's how you want to communicate it and message it. Number three, you want people who are passionate and engaged and knowledgeable about politics and particularly uh, knowledgeable about the district, ideally able to speak from being from that district. Um, you want, ideally, a candidate who's from that district. That does help. Um, I think it can be overrated the extent to which, you know, you need someone of the demographic identity of that district. But you do need someone who's, who's um, familiar with it. And finally, you need a simple through line that connects it all. I, when I did political consulting uh, for campaigns, I would always say, what is our Make America Great Again? Give me why we're doing this in a simple five or six word sentence. And if they can't, I basically know that they're not going to beat their underlying spread. If you can't explain it to me, you're not going to be able to explain it to voters. And if you give me two or three generic bland policies, um, no, no. Why are you running? It can be very, very simple. And I won't divulge the sort of some of the ones I've come up with with people. But that would be sort of like how I think about like running a successful political campaign. And in general, people sort of don't want to hear it. Um, progressives always talk about like organizing and so on. Um, but they don't really want to hear that that means being embedded within communities and working with those communities on issues like they need their potholes filled in. And, you know, we need a stop sign at the end of this, this block, and there's too much graffiti in the neighbourhood. We, we, that's not sexy or glamorous, and we kind of don't want to hear that. But, but, like, getting those additional votes out of a district is a matter of being able to connect with people, often about quite immediate concerns. Um, so anyway, that's some of the stuff... Um, about how I think about winning political campaigns. Okay, next up. Feeling isolated, affronted, afraid by ongoing political and social events in my own country. How does one helpfully begin to approach feelings of anger and total exasperation towards fellow citizens who continue to vote for said chaos? How can there be acceptance or forgiveness? Oh, well, you'll have to say it's a beautifully phrased question. Um, I'm not sure there can be. I mean, as a moral consequentialist who believes people are very heavily shaped by their environment, I try not to be angry with people for having views that, you know, maybe if I had their upbringing and cultural influences, I would have the same views. But nonetheless, those views are harmful, and they are harming people. So I, I don't know what um, the questioner's own country is. I'll answer this for America, and I think this certainly um, applies for America. How can there be acceptance or forgiveness? Um, I think forgiveness has to be asked for. It has to be earned. I'm all about doing the work we can to persuade people to not vote a certain way or not support social movements that might be authoritarian or racist. I'm all about doing the work of getting people out of that. And once they are out of it and hopefully see that what they were doing was harmful, they can ask for forgiveness. And then that will be a process, right? 
So I'm not saying we just say screw you. I, I'm all about doing the work of changing people's minds, and I believe at least in individual instances that that is possible. Um, but more broadly, no, I mean, look at what's happening in America right now. Look at the authoritarianism and the racism. Look at how many more deaths we're having through COVID or will likely have through the current protests about police violence that could have been avoided with competent leadership. I don't say inspired leadership. Inspired would be great, but even competent would do at this point, right? Look at look at how much worse our social fabric has been. Look at our standing in the world. Look at all the list of things Democrats correctly complain about. People support that. People are still supporting it. And I don't know, man. I think if you think about how we look at acceptance and forgiveness and just like interpersonal relationships, I think that provides a clearer model for how we're at. So like, you know, in the context of a friendship or a romantic relationship, people do bad things all the time. People lie, they do things that are hurtful, partners are unfaithful to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be acceptance or forgiveness, but it has to be asked for. And it has to be earned. Like, think about it in the case of an unfaithful husband or wife, right? Marriages can and do survive those things. But for them ever to be healthy again, the person at fault needs to apologise. And they need to commit to an affirmative course of action that shows that in the future their behaviour will change. And that, you know, with time, that is someone that the, the other partner can, can grow to trust again. I, I, I wouldn't think it would be a particularly healthy relationship unless it's polyamorous or something and there was an agreement on that beforehand. But, like, I wouldn't think it were a particularly healthy relationship where someone could be unfaithful or abusive or unpleasant and simply get forgiveness without it being asked for, without it being earned. Um, and I think there's this, this, this is so understandable and so human instinct to say that there must be some way that we can all just come together again, that we can all just get on again. Um, but I would ask, what would be the moral costs of that? I can still accept in some very broad sense people are good people insofar as they might be, you know, vote Republican but be kind and friendly and loving to their wife and kids, but they're not good people in the sense that their political actions are reliably harming others, right? And to sort of just blanket say, I'm putting that all to one side. It's like you support one sports team, I support another, but I'm not really going to let it get in the way of my affection or trust for you. I'm, I'm still going to accept you and forgive you. I don't know, wouldn't that sort of, at least implicitly, require us to say that we don't think those harms are that important? I do think those harms are that important. Now, that doesn't preclude the possibility for that person to change. But I don't think we can just take very, very real material harms and just say that that doesn't matter. It does matter. You know? And look, you know, people say I'm too hardline on this, but I don't accept or forgive a lot of people on the left who I think have made bad decisions. So I'll give you an example of this. Um, you know, in 2016, when Trump was running and it looked like he would win, Probably dozens of people I knew quite well, and many more I sort of vaguely interacted with online or whatever, spent the entire campaign loudly saying Hillary was worse. Loudly saying, it doesn't matter who wins, I'm not going to vote because of, like, some conspiracy I've heard about how Bernie was cheated. And also saying 
it doesn't matter because one, Trump can't win, and two, they'd all say this. They, they've sort of walked back on it now, but they'd all say this. He doesn't really believe what he's saying. Well, that's just really, really poor political judgment. I think we've seen from, what, three and a half years of him now, that while the man is a pathological liar, his commitment to racism, his commitment to authoritarianism, they're genuine enough as they go. And they're very, very harmful. And this idea that he doesn't really mean it, and could do no real damage, and maybe will somehow in some mysterious way bring on the revolution, has all just proven really, really false. And I remember people being really arrogant and scornful with me about this. You're just being an idiot, Toby. If you ever think he can win, don't be stupid, I was told a number of times. I remember on the eve of the election being in an absolute nervous state. And, like, I got all my anxiety with 2016 before the election, because I was pretty confident Trump was going to win. I think I gave him 60-40 odds of winning it, was how I expressed it at the time. And someone said, you seem really worked up. And I said, you're not scared by this? And they literally just waved their hand at me and said, that's so stupid. He's never going to win. And I said, he can. He's two points behind in the polls, and he has an electoral college advantage, and the enthusiasm gaps on his side, and the late deciders are breaking his way. And it's just like they sort of just literally laughed. Now, what I find hard about that is not that those people made a mistake. It's that there's really, except in a few cases, never been any recognition that a mistake was made. I struggle with that. I see people, and I've I've really refrained from posting about this online because I think it's not helpful. And in my public commentary on this, I try to be... I try to think what, not what is, like, the most authentic expression of my feelings, but, like, let's say what I mean and be truthful, but try and engage, try and show that you've understood where other people are coming from. And I've done a huge body of work on the 2020 primary, looking at why there is such anger and dissatisfaction within some parts of the democratic base, and saying I find some of it quite understandable and legitimate, looking at what went right for Bernie and what went wrong for Bernie, right? Um, but I think, you know, I struggle when I see people posting things like, you know, I knew Trump was bad, but I never realised he'd be this bad. Were you listening to a single word out of the man's mouth in 2016? This is actually fairly mild, compared to some of the worst-case scenarios we could have had, that Trump would have a national crisis and horrendously mismanage it, was completely predictable. Most presidencies have some sort of crisis they have to deal with. Let's be glad it was a virus and not some sort of um, Cuban missile crisis moment. My god, can you imagine if we'd had a nuclear showdown? That could still happen! And I just want to, like, say to people, they say, I never realised we'd have kids in cages. He was telling us that's what he intended to do. You all just decided you knew his mind and that he didn't mean it. And I have talked to, and again, I think the metaphor of like a relationship is a good one here. I have talked to some people who have regretted it and apologised. I talked to someone, I won't name them because they're a public figure, um, but they were on the podcast. And after we stopped recording, we chatted about this. And they admitted, yeah, I was a Bernie or Bust voter, and I really regret it now. And they said, I I didn't realise he'd be this bad. And I said, but that was a mistake. And to their credit, they said, yeah, I know it was a mistake. I know it was a mistake, and screw it. If it's Biden, I'll vote for Biden regardless. Um, And I sort of wish they'd said it publicly, but it was kind of a sensitive conversation and I appreciated their candour, so I wasn't about to say, I want to hit record again and get you live saying this. Um, but, like, going forward, is that someone I can sort of see myself... You know, is that, is that like, someone I could extend forgiveness towards? Yeah, I think so. I think there's always going to be a bit of hurt feelings. I think I'm always going to feel like, how did someone as smart as you 
just get basic political analysis so long. I think I'm always going to sort of feel that way, but I can locate that within a general ethics of compassion and realising that all of us make mistakes and all of us say stupid things. So, you know, that I think makes sense to me. But when people just dig in and say they don't mind a second term of Trump because I don't even know something about Medicare for all, which you know logically in the rational part of your brain will get struck down by the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen. But, like, you won't vote a fascist out of office because of that. I just, I struggle. It's just an intuitive thing. It's like an emotional thing. I don't, I, I really can't trust you. I can't. Like, you're not, you're not. It's not even like you're not on my team. It's like there are horrific outcomes that you're just not thinking clearly about. And you're not engaging with the ethical seriousness of this in a mature way. So I struggle with other people on the left. And if you want me to do the other side, I struggle with people who are very invested in the Democratic Party as an institution and sort of paper over the obvious mistakes that it's made that have led us to this point. I sort of struggle with people like that. Um, and that's on the left, right? Those are people who are nominally my allies. I can't find it in my heart to forgive people who are unrepentant Trump supporters. Repentant, maybe. And even the repentant ones, like, I don't... I don't really know how I feel about the never-Trumpers. I'm sort of glad they're not Trumpers, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but I think even there, there's a sort of lack of awareness about, like, Trump is the only thing wrong with the Republican Party. He's not. He's, he's really not. And so to the people who are just straightforwardly on the other side, Whose concerns would I be saying didn't matter if I said I forgave them? Black people, poor people, gay people. The list goes on, right? Um, I think it's unfortunate that we find ourselves in this position. But one thing I always say is that politics doesn't operate by fundamentally different rules than our regular social lives do. In our regular social lives, there are people we like and trust, and we've always been great friends with. There are people who have made mistakes, but have moved on from them, and we've offered our forgiveness. And there's some people who maybe we can't forgive, or we wouldn't be able to forgive without some affirmative action on their side. We all recognise that's true in our sort of social and work and romantic lives. There's definitely some people I've encountered, I mean, look, I've worked in politics for a while, there's definitely people I've encountered in work who, absent some sort of road to Damascus moment, I just, to their core, I think, are not to be trusted. Right, and we all know there's such people out there. Politics is no different, right? There are some groups and movements who are generally on the right. There are some who are flawed but redeemable. There may be some who are irredeemable. And that may be a dispiriting conclusion. We might wish it were otherwise, but we would only be wishing. And I think the illusion of consensus is one an illusion. I don't think it can be had. I don't think we will all come together. I think there is a strain in a lot of groups in this country that just likes triggering people. They like trolling. I, 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 maybe it's true of me to some degree, but I always try to avoid it. When I talk to Republicans in a Staten Island dive bar, or at least I used to, they always want to say something because they think it'll get a rise out of you. Owning the libs, right? So you can't have a come-to-Jesus moment with that person because they don't want to have it with you. So there's nothing to be done there. And even groups on the left, I see people purportedly a left-wing posting all the time about, I'm going to laugh when Biden loses. 
Really. Think about all the people who'll be directly harmed who you're laughing at. I'm not sure there's compromise in a come-to-Jesus moment to be had with someone who thinks it's funny that Trump will get a second term. You can hate me for that, that's how I feel. I don't think, I don't think that's per someone... I don't think that's someone who will allow you to be on their side. I've had people who, who say I'm a sellout and a traitor because I say that I think the, the narrative that the media was biased against Bernie is a bit overblown and not cashed out by the evidence, right? Those people actually went nuts on my Twitter a while ago and called me all sorts of things. There's no point at which they'll accept me as someone who shares some but not all of their narrative. There's certainly not that case with hardcore Trump supporters. They won't have it. They won't accept you, Olive Branch. So it's not possible to begin with. And even if it is possible, is it desirable? Is it right or proper that we throw our allies and our self-respect and our values under the bus in order to have this thing? In order to have this idea that we can all be okay with each other? I don't know. I'd put it to you that it isn't. Okay, let's do this one. Okay, this is a good one, and we'll do this one and then close. Um, COVID-19 presents an opportunity to examine positive versus negative rights. Which frameworks, utility, republican, existential, should guide individual and societal actions? How does one reconcile the conflict between utility and non-domination? Cool, great question. So, you know, thinking about um, the ethics of, say, the COVID lockdown, um, I think this is a sort of really... Um, good test case for mapping out a number of different sort of theories of freedom or theories of rights. My, my first pass is to say there's, there's really nothing wrong with looking at it from a range of perspectives to try and get a three-dimensional view. So let's just start with the negative perspective. You know, stay-at-home orders or whatever, are they a restriction on your negative freedom? Negative freedom understood as the absence of deliberate interpersonal constraints. Um, yes, definitionally so, they're curtailing your freedom of action. The thing is, all law curtails your freedom of, of, of action. If you have a law against murder, that curtails your freedom of action. But it wouldn't necessarily increase your freedom for murder to be legal, because then my people might be murdering you, and that would certainly curtail your freedom of action, right? Um, so the question then becomes, what constraints on your negative liberty are justifiable in a society that respects individuality and autonomy and individual choice making. And the classical liberal answer to that, which I still cleave to, um, some people think it's a bit dated, I actually think it's a good starting point, is John Stuart Mill's liberty principle. You can constrain individual action in order to prevent harm to others. Now, to my mind, at least in principle, the restrictions we've seen because of COVID are liberty principle justifiable. In other words, if it merely endangered my life to not wear a mask or to go to a nightclub or whatever, then it's self-regarding action, the government needs to leave me alone. But it's the fact that I'm endangering other people which brings it within the remit of legitimate state control. And so I think a lot of the narratives about like classical liberal freedom kind of get it wrong. It's, it's not about any restriction is inadmissible, because that would mean we had no law, right? Even libertarians aren't anarchists, right? The, the, the question is, does it harm others? Now, I do think um, the liberty principle also takes into account economic harm as harm. So I think I would be much more okay with the sort of shutdown orders if the financial losers from that, people who've lost their job or whatever, were better economically compensated for it. I know there has been a big boost in unemployment payments, which is good, and I know there has been the one-time stimulus check, which is good. Um, 
I think to fully mitigate my concerns about resources and freedom, I would want to see something more along the lines of an emergency UBI or something like that. So that is a legitimate concern. But in principle, at least, if it's to prevent harm for others, it falls on the right side of the liberty principle. Now, the next one you raised is non-domination. I actually think a lot of people talk about this as a form of domination. I think that sort of misunderstands what non-domination theory is saying. Non-domination theory isn't saying your freedom is curtailed if someone has power over you. They're saying it's whether or not that power is arbitrary and unaccountable. Well, is it in this case? Well, it kind of is sometimes, right? But on the other side of that, at least in, you know, the US and the UK, the governments that have instituted lockdown orders are democratically elected. They're generally doing so with the consent of the population. The majority of people in both countries have supported this. It's quite a fringe movement that protests it. And again, they haven't required a heavy hand of compliance enforcement, even though it's been incredibly disruptive and in some cases incredibly painful when um, people can't visit relatives or whatever. Um, People have generally complied without having to be forced to do so. And so I think about it, if you think about it this way, as is this a decision which has had collective input, which has had collective buy-in, and then, yes, might have to drag a few stragglers along? Or is it something that's been imposed from the top down arbitrarily? I think it's complicated. I think it's a bit of both. But I think, by and large, there is actually a non-domination defence of the lockdown, in that it's not just the arbitrary will of someone. Now, the questioner asks, what's the relationship between utility and non-domination? Well, I think it goes something like this. First step would be, is this liberty principle kosher? If someone's only harming themselves, that's their call. Now, within the remit of things that might harm other people or not, we don't want to go outlawing all of them. After all, as Mill says, it harms someone else if I succeed on a competitive examination. That doesn't mean competitive examinations should be banned. So the principle there becomes something like greatest welfare. If it's something that can harm others, we need to just look at the costs and benefits and say, will the harm caused by a prohibition outweigh the good that it um, the harm caused by not having the prohibition, say, right? So then we're just doing a more sort of classical utilitarianism. The thing is, in order for that to work, in order for it to be actionable, it can't really be just one person arbitrarily saying, this is my um, assessment of what's in everyone's best interests, you'll just have to do it. For one, because there'll be big compliance issues if one person is just forcing everyone else, it's doubtful how effective it will be. And two, because being in that relation of domination where arbitrary power is exercised over you is harmful to people. And I think that harm outweighs any um, benefits you would get by having a dictator impose their arbitrary will, however far-sighted or benevolent. And dictators are usually not those things, right? So I think the test runs. Is it justified by the liberty principle? Yes. Is this something that on balance will seem to raise utility? Yes, but then how do we agree to it? How do we do it? What does it look like? Well, that's where non-domination comes in. That's where you say everyone who this power is exercised over needs to have an input, needs to have a say. We need to try and get the biggest buy-in possible. Now, so far, at least in theory, um... I think you can clear at least an idealised uh, version of the shutdown orders through all three of those hoops. Now, here's where I think it falls down, is within the community in which people decide on, people decide collectively on restrictions of their freedom, those restrictions need to apply universally and all people within that community need to have rough 
equality of power and status, otherwise the thing doesn't work, and this is where I think it begins to break down a little. Now, just before I get to that, I will say, there's other ways of thinking about it. There is a strongly racialized tradition of thinking about freedom in America, where coercive state power is something that is done to black people, and not to white people. And, you know, it's completely fine for the police to brutalize black people, but my god, you tell me I can't get a haircut, we're gonna storm the state capital with militias. So, there's, a, there's, there's versions of freedom that people are appealing to here that is not how I would go about thinking about freedom in a systematic way, and there's versions of freedom which is simply that freedom is using state coercive power to enforce a racial or class-based hierarchy, and I think that is a lot of what we're seeing on the other side, and we need to be explicit about exposing and opposing it, right? But getting back to this point, is it liberty principle, kosher? Is this sort of a utility-maximizing thing? And then finally, is this a thing for which collective consent, at least of a broad majority, can be secured? Or is it arbitrary and unaccountable? I think this is where it goes wrong, in that people, you know, we think about people, there's a very dim view of the masses in the history of political thought as fickle and irresponsible and not to be trusted, but in many ways, as Machiavelli says, the people are more constant and more knowing than a prince. People have done the right thing without being told. People have not visited relatives on their deathbed. They have not attended funerals. They have tried to do their work at home with young kids screaming around them. They have endured months of separation from people who they desperately need to have physical contact with. People have done all this, and by and large, they've done it without complaining, right? I think... Where people have been pushed over the top is not that they were asked to bear these quite heroic sacrifices. They bore them willingly out of an understanding. I don't think they put it exactly like I am, but out of an understanding that it was to prevent harm to others, it was in the greater good, and it was something that had been collectively decided on. It was, it was a legitimate use of power. I think people understood all of that on, on, an, on an intuitive level. What they couldn't understand or accept, and I think correctly so, is when there were some people who took themselves outside of that. When there were some people who said, those rules don't apply to me, they apply to you, but they don't apply to me. I think for non-domination to work, it has to be the case that any power exercised is exercised with collective consent, but it's also exercised uniformly. People don't get to self-exempt. And I think people have a very understandable reaction of unfairness when people do. So in the UK, for instance, when this senior government advisor, Dominic Cummings, breaks the lockdown rules in a very stupid and blatant way, and then just doesn't apologise and said, well, I did what I thought was right for my family. People, even conservatives, were furious. They still are furious. I didn't get to see my sick mother in the hospital because I understood that this was a sort of negative liberty sacrifice I had to make for the sort of positive liberty of the community, you know, you might say. And it's not okay for you to take yourself out of that. I think, you know, we look at police killings in the US and the protests that have come up. I don't know this is exactly how people would say it, but I, I wonder if it's hitting in a way that it didn't before, maybe especially for white people, that... We accepted, without having to be forced to do so, voluntarily, very invasive restrictions in our lives, because we understood it was to save other people's lives. And these people will not tolerate, the police that is, even the most basic restrictions on their action to prevent them from actively taking people's lives. If we can forego seeing our sick mother in the hospital, you can forego your right to, like, put your knee on someone's neck for nine minutes. And I think there is this sense of, like, wait, why do you think a completely different set of rules apply to you? That has sort of burst forth in both countries, in that... You know, we've all taken risks 
people have willingly lost their jobs over this and not complained. And the police, any slight threat to them, they have to respond with lethal force. And I think it's just, at some, I don't think it's even conscious, at some subconscious level it's just brought it home of what the fuck is this person's problem. And what that says to me is that actually, in this case at least, people's intuitions are very much in line with sort of what non-domination theory would suggest, which is that in order for this to work, people can't opt out of it. If we all sort of agree intuitively with the liberty principle, at least maybe not in all of its cases, and then we all agree that within the realm of other regarding actions, we work for the common good through informed debate and mutual consent in which no person has arbitrary power over others, then if that's the case, it has to be that people can't just exempt themselves from that. And we react very badly when they try to. I think we're correct to react quite badly. And, look, you want to talk about non-domination. The police been able to decide arbitrarily to just kill someone is an absolute case one case, or type one case, sorry, of being in a position of domination, which is to say of non-freedom. So, okay, let's pause there. I think that was about an episode's worth. Some of that was very off the cuff in my initial reactions. That was pretty much done in one take. So, um, try not to get too offended if there's something in there uh, you didn't agree with. But yeah, thanks as always for listening, and I hope you'll continue to check out the podcast as we go forward. Thank you.